Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. We are already in the middle of February, believe it or not. And at least to me, that means two things. One, it's definitely way too cold to work out outside. And there is a lot of chocolate that is on sale at CVS because Valentine's Day is behind us. That is a very dangerous combination. (laughs) Lauren, I know though, you have been actually staying strong throughout this winter. You've continued to work out. How's that going for you? Oh, it was going pretty well. I was, uh, you know, eating healthy. And I mean, I think I only took maybe three months off the entire pandemic uh, from the gym. But on Monday, the day that we had off for President's Day, I, at 30 years old, threw out my back <laughs> and... <laughs> You know, You're such an old woman. Yeah. My dad used to do it. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're being a baby. But like, no, it, it's, the, it's, it's absolutely awful. It's like every little time that you move, it's just, it hurts, right? Because your back does everything. And uh, yeah, so I, uh, literally as we speak, I'm standing up because um, I can't sit down right now. And I have an ice pack tucked in the back of my pants. to, to <laughs> ice <poor> thing. <laughs> but, <laughs> but at least. You messed up your back like doing something legit. Like you were working out at Orange Theory, you were involved, you were being active. It wasn't like, you know, I picked up my cat and like (laughs) did it the wrong way. (laughs) That's very true. Even though, Virginia, I will say I really do love to run outside in the cold months. Okay, that's good. That's good that one of us do because I do not like to run in the cold. I yesterday I was sitting on my couch and like it's you know it's staying light a little bit later, so I'd finished work and I was like, man, I should really go for a run. And then I was like, oh, but it's cold outside. So no. Well, it's not just cold. There's snow on the ground, right? Um, most of it has melted uh, here in Virginia now. There's still little patches, but it's just wet now. The ground is just sopping oh, wet, yeah. so it's kind of that gross like yeah you can tell we're in that season where weather is starting to like fluctuate of like wait is spring coming no I think it's still winter so tomorrow we're supposed to get snow and anyway that time I'll, of I'll year. take it one step closer <laughs> to summer exactly exactly all right well Lauren what do we have queued up for today's show Up on today's Problematic Women, we talk with Heritage Foundation's Melanie Israel about current abortion legislation and what we can expect from the Biden administration regarding pro-choice policies. Plus, Heritage's education expert, Lindsay Burke, joins us to discuss the impact school closures are having on kids across America. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. Today, we're talking about a subject that most of America has a very strong opinion on one way or another, 
and that is abortion. We're going to discuss where we are currently in America with regard to the abortion debate now that Biden is in the White House. But before we dive into that subject, we first just want to say for any of our listeners who've had an abortion and may be wrestling with regrets or remorse for that decision, there is so much hope for you. There is healing, and we want you to know that there is so much love for you. There are amazing resources available that walk you through that healing process. Many crisis pregnancy centers offer counseling for women who have had an abortion. And if your local pregnancy center doesn't offer one of those services, they're likely going to know how to connect you with resources that can provide that hope and that healing. There's even uh, a great video series produced by Focus on the Family that talks through for both mothers and fathers who have experienced abortion, how to heal from that, how to walk through that loss. We'll link that in today's show notes. But we just want you to know this is obviously uh, a hard subject, but no matter you know, your experience with the subject of abortion, there is hope, there is healing. And we want you to know that and be able to utilize the resources that are available to you. Um, Abortion, of course, remains such a critical issue in our nation because 62 million babies have lost their lives to abortion since Roe versus Wade passed in 1973. And now that the Biden administration is in power, we're beginning to see that a lot of very pro-choice policies are being pushed forward and the undoing of a lot of pro-life legislation that was put in place by the Trump administration. Here to help us break down the latest abortion news is Melanie Israel. Melanie is a Heritage Foundation Research Associate in the Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunities. Melanie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's good to be with you today. You wrote in a recent Heritage paper that you foresee that the pro-life cause will be under a constant attack over the next two years, and a lot of this attack is going to come straight from the abortion lobbyists. Can you explain what the pro-life movement is up against over at least the next two years? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I say the next two years because, of course, we have midterm elections and who knows what's going to happen um, on that front with, with Congress. But we really are going to be experiencing threats coming from all different angles, both in Congress and the administration. We know that the Biden administration is going to work very aggressively to roll back a lot of those good Trump administration regulations, um, especially a lot of the things that they had done at um, HHS. They had um, implemented some, some different regulations that enforced transparency with Obamacare abortion coverage. They had enacted Um, some regulations that disallowed abortion providers from participating in the federal family planning program. They had implemented moral and religious exemptions from Obamacare's contraception mandate. Um, They they had really done a lot of good work. And unfortunately, we know that the Biden administration is going to turn around and really do the exact opposite. And then, of course, in Congress, we have Democrats from Nancy Pelosi to Rosa DeLauro, the House Appropriations Chair, um, committing to 
do away with the Hyde Amendment, which of course is an amendment to annual appropriation bills that says that taxpayer funding is not going to go toward elective abortions. Um, Democrats in Congress want to reverse that. They want taxpayers to have to fund elective abortions. That's really one of their signature policies that they're pushing. And we're going to see them advocating for that um, in, in many different pieces of legislation here in the coming months. Well, let's dive a little bit deeper into some of those policies, like you mentioned the Hyde Amendment. So what is your prediction for, you know, will we see that the Hyde Amendment is able to stay in place? Or do you predict that Biden is likely going to repeal it? And then if he does, what is that actually going to mean for the nation? Yeah, yeah. So I I would say that the threat is very real. Um, particularly when we have Democrats in the Senate who are wanting to do away with the filibuster, which of course would mean everything could pass with a simple majority, um, which they have. And so the, the threat is very, very real. And we see them trying to advocate to do away um, with the Hyde Amendment in several different ways. Um, one of the things that they're trying to do in the current budget reconciliation proposal is to have billions of dollars in this, um, you know, allegedly coronavirus relief funding um, that's going to be spent without Hyde Amendment restrictions. It's going to allow billions of dollars um, to flow without that Hyde Amendment protection. Um, that That's one of the proposals in budget reconciliation right now. One of the other things that they're trying to do is to explicitly make clear that Planned Parenthood is eligible for Paycheck Protection Program funding. Um, they they want to be able to send those taxpayer dollars directly to the abortion industry, who I will note, um, you know, has billions and billions of dollars um, in assets and, you know, tons of excess revenue, according to their own annual report. And then we also know that in annual appropriations legislation, they are saying that the Hyde Amendment is a non-starter for them. Now, on the flip side, we have Republicans in both the House and the Senate who have sent letters to other members of Congress and President Biden saying that for them, the Hyde Amendment must be in any federal spending bill um, or else they will not support it. So we've really got a, a standoff already of both sides saying that the Hyde Amendment being in a bill or not in a bill is a, a non-starter for both sides. And so it's going to be really, really interesting to see how this plays out and, you know, frankly, see who blinks first. Wow. I can't believe in the middle of a pandemic, the Biden administration is making a priority to give Planned Parenthood PPP funds. That's insane. Right. And again, we just have to look at their annual report, which I will note they usually release in January. They haven't released one for this year yet. But for the one that they released in 2020, they're reporting themselves for anyone to see all of these many, many millions of dollars in excess revenue and net assets. This is not an organization that the Paycheck Protection Program is meant to be helping. About a week after Biden took office, he rolled back some of the extra protections of the Mexico City policy that Trump enacted. Can you talk about the implications of Biden's decision to allow more taxpayer dollars to go to foreign organizations that fund abortions? 
Right, right. And, you know, amazingly, the Trump administration had actually expanded the Mexico City policy to apply to even more avenues of funding than it has, you know, in, in previous Republican administrations. And so it, it was a policy that had an enormous impact. It meant that these organizations like Planned Parenthood, like Marie Stopes International that go in to other countries and try to perform and promote abortions weren't receiving U.S. funding. And the State Department did a review and found that women still had access to health care because funding was instead able to go to other organizations who weren't part of the abortion industry and women were still able to get care. Um, the, the U.S. is the most generous country in the world when it comes to our foreign aid assistance. And the Trump administration was right to make sure that we are spending our money on life saving um, you know, healthcare activities. So it's really disappointing to see that the Biden administration is rescinding that policy. And now these organizations like Planned Parenthood International are going to be able to receive U.S. funding again. They've also restored funding for the United Nations Population Fund, which the Trump administration had ended funding for. And of course, the Trump administration ended that funding because they determined that the United Nations Population Fund was complicit in China's coercive family planning practices, things like forced abortions and forced sterilizations. So we're, you know, you're, you're right. We're really seeing a lot of unfortunate activity happening internationally, not just domestically. So much of this feels like it should not be a partisan issue. Like we should all be able to get behind and agree that, okay, we shouldn't be handing out money to, you know, groups that do things like you say, like uh, really enforcing um, those very totalitarian, like China's one child policy, those sorts of things. Um, and, you know, I think one one issue that has really surprised me is that by the Biden administration has talked about weakening the uh, the Food and Drug Administration guidelines on chemical abortion pills. And those guidelines have been in place for years. They're meant to really protect women, to keep them safe. These are pills that allow you to essentially have an abortion at home. Uh, there's a lot of risk involved. So could you just explain what exactly um, these chemical abortion pills are and then what loosening those restrictions would look like and how that could potentially jeopardize the health of women. Absolutely. I am so, so glad that you brought this issue up because I think a lot of people don't understand just how big of an impact the advent of chemical abortion pills um, you know, has been when, when we talk about the scope of, of abortion more broadly. Um, when people think about abortion, they typically think about surgical abortion. Um, and that's where a lot of, you know, the legislation has been geared toward. But chemical abortion, this is really a, a new frontier that's going to completely change the landscape on which these policy battles are fought. Um, abortion pills, it's a two-part process. You take one pill that essentially cuts off nutrients to the developing child, and then you take a second pill that induces cramping so that, um, you know, you end up expelling the pregnancy. And obviously for the abortion lobby, this means that they are able to perform more abortions because a, a chemical abortion process with abortion pills, it just doesn't come with the same kind of, you know, overhead requirements that a surgical abortion 
is going to come with. And so one of the other things that's really dangerous that people don't realize is that abortion pills actually have higher rates of complications than surgical abortions. Um, we're seeing now women being given these pills to go and have abortion at home. The abortion industry downplays what those women are going to experience. They tell them it's just going to be a heavy period. It's not going to be anything unusual. And of course, for so many women, that's not true. They end up having excessive blood loss. They end up having to go to the hospital. Um, taking an abortion pill, if you have an ectopic pregnancy, can be fatal. Um, and in fact, there have been fatalities associated with the abortion pill. And one of the other things that I think is amazing that people should realize is that in the last decade, the portion of chemical abortions happening in the United States has increased 120%. Wow. According to our most recent data, roughly 40% of abortions that happen every year are chemical abortions. And so for the Biden administration, you know, we're expecting them to loosen these restrictions. It's really dangerous. And when I say restrictions, I, I should probably clarify what we're talking about. So right now, only qualified prescribers can give women a prescription for an abortion pill. And so this is not something that you can get at just any doctor's office. You have to essentially go to an abortion provider because they're the only ones who actively seek out to be a qualified prescriber. And they have to give a woman this medication. You can't pick it up in a retail pharmacy. You can't go and get an abortion pill at Walgreens right now. Um, but again, the Biden administration is wanting to change that. They're, they're wanting to roll back these restrictions. And it, it, it's really unfortunate to see the abortion industry pushing for things like mail order abortion pills, telemedicine abortion. Um, th this is so dangerous for women who are not really going to be seen in person by a qualified doctor to determine if this is even safe for them. Wow. One of the other ongoing debates when it comes to abortion is whether or not organizations should be forced to pay for abortions as part of their health care. We've seen this, of course, with the Little Sisters of the Poor, who have now been all the way up to the Supreme Court twice to protect their religious freedom on this issue. What can we expect under Biden in regards to protecting the rights of religious organizations who refuse to pay for abortions? Right. So, you know, this was one of those Trump administration policies that was such a wonderful thing to see. They issued regulations that provided both moral and religious exemptions from Obamacare's mandate that nearly all health insurance plans have to cover contraception and abortion-inducing drugs and devices, which, of course, was a huge relief to, to the Little Sisters of the Poor, as well as other secular organizations who have, um, you know, not necessarily a, a religious belief, but a moral belief um, about the, the sanctity of human life. And unfortunately, Biden, even on the campaign trail, was very, very clear that he did not agree with those exemptions being allowed and that he intends to roll them back. And it, it's really amazing when you think, especially about the Little Sisters of the Poor, an order of Catholic nuns who serve the elderly, sick and poor, um, you know, in, in the final hours of their lives. They they are true servants, selfless at heart. And for the Biden administration to essentially say, yep, you've been litigating this issue for almost a decade and we're going to keep dragging you to court to force you to pay for contraception and abortion inducing drugs and devices in your health plan is 
it's really just astounding. And I think that unfortunately the American people just don't realize how good it is for society when people are able to live their lives and, and have their views, you know, not have to worry about violating their beliefs. You know, how horrible would it be if the little sisters of the poor had to shut down rather than violate their religious beliefs? That that wouldn't help anyone. That would only hurt the elderly, sick, and vulnerable who they're trying to serve. Yeah. No, it really is such a sad situation. And I think it goes, uh, like you said, like it goes to the heart of that issue that it it would be so tragic to see these organizations uh, ultimately have to shut their doors because they're not willing to compromise on their religious beliefs and they shouldn't have to. Um, But Melanie, I I do want to ask you, are there other pieces of legislation at the federal level um, that you're really keeping a close eye on right now in regards to abortion policy and abortion legislation? Yeah, yeah. So I would I would highlight really three main bills on the federal policy front. Um, now, obviously, with the current makeup of Congress and the numbers that we're working with, um, I, I think more realistically, um, you know, filing amendments or trying to force a vote on these issues is really going to be illustrative for people just to be able to see where their elected officials fall more than anything rather than, you know, actually hoping that they're going to pass into law. But I I do want to highlight there's a couple, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. That is a bill that would augment current law by providing for criminal penalties if a healthcare provider does not provide proper medical care to a baby who is born after an abortion attempt. Right now, federal law recognizes those babies as a person, but Federal law right now doesn't place any kind of requirements on the medical practitioner to do something um, after that baby's born. And so the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act would remedy that problem. Um, One of the other bills that I would want to highlight is the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act. Um, And that is a bill that would end the practice of inhumane late-term abortions performed after 20 weeks. Um, At 20 weeks, scientific evidence tells us that babies are capable of feeling excruciating pain during an abortion procedure. And the U.S. right now is one of only seven countries in the entire world that allows these kinds of elective late-term abortions for any reason. And so um, the the pain-capable bill would really bring the U.S. more in line with the vast vast majority of the developed world. So, Melody, we've talked a lot about all the negative things, and and you you mentioned some great legislation, but is there any positive news going on in the pro-life world right now? Yeah, yeah. I I, I hope people um, are able to come away with this and and realize that it's not all doom and gloom. in the states, we're actually seeing a lot of wonderful progress happening. In the last decade, we've had over 300 pro-life laws passing at the state level, and legislators are showing no sign of slowing down right now. One of the things that several states are trying to take action on right now as their legislatures convene is addressing this issue of chemical abortion, because everybody can kind of see it. You you can see it coming from a mile away that the Biden administration is going to weaken these restrictions to try to allow for things like 
telemedicine abortion, abortion pills by mail. And so state legislatures are trying to work to kind of augment their current state law to ensure that the current restrictions that are in place will still be in place at the state level within their jurisdiction. So that's definitely, definitely an encouraging development. And then we also see more states trying to act to protect born alive infants to end late term abortions. At the federal level, it's going to be really, really difficult to see a lot of progress here for the next couple of years. But in the states, we have a lot of really, really energized um, members of state legislatures and, and state activist groups who recognize that you can't really rely on federal policy and, and regulations right now. And so they're taking action themselves. Well, it's good to end on some good news. Melanie, thank you. We just really appreciate all of the work that you do on this issue. Uh, how can our listeners follow your work and read what you're writing about? Sure, sure. So um, you can check out my papers at heritage.org. And then I also provide commentary at the Daily Signal quite frequently. And just to kind of give folks a preview, um, I'll have a, a paper about the 117th Congress, uh, the agenda, kind of what we can expect to see coming out shortly. And so I'll, you know, we'll, we'll be sure to share that at heritage.org, as well as a deep dive about the chemical abortion issue, um, really exploring the, the history of the abortion pill and how it was developed and how it got FDA approval. It's a pretty wild ride. And so those are um, kind of two different papers I can preview uh, that'll be coming out here in the next couple of weeks. Great. Melanie, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Lindsay Burke, Director of the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation, as we discuss how schools keeping their doors closed is having a huge impact on students. But before we get to our conversation with Lindsay, I need you all to answer just two questions for me. Number one, do you like learning new things? And number two, do you watch YouTube videos? If you answered yes to one or both of those questions, then you need to subscribe to the Daily Signal's YouTube channel. We're constantly posting interview clips, policy explainers, and other short videos on the channel that are really both informative and super entertaining. So go ahead, pull out your phone and subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel so you can be in the know on all of the policy debates and all of the news that you care about. I am so pleased to welcome back to the show, Lindsay Burke. Lindsay is the director for the Center of Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Lindsay, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me back. All right. So the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they've said it's safe for kids to return to school as long as, you know, there are precautions taken. There's still social distancing. Kids are still wearing masks. But in several cities across the U.S., what we're seeing is that teachers unions are really preventing kids and teachers from actually going back to school. So could you just take a second and explain what exactly is going on with these teachers unions and why they're preventing kids from returning to school, even when we have the CDC saying it's safe? Yeah, well, there's a lot going on. And, and I will put it into three buckets. We have the unions and what they're doing, as you said, in city after city to keep schools closed. 
We have this newest CDC guidance that came out last Friday. And then we also have the Biden administration's 100-day plan for reopening schools, which really looks more like a plan, unfortunately, for closing schools. And so there is a lot going on. The unions are a big part of the story. If we look across the country, a good number of school districts are actually open. About 60% of districts are estimated to be offering some full-time instruction to elementary school kids uh, as of this past November. And so there are a lot of school districts that are open, but those numbers get driven down. The number of kids overall who have access to in-person instruction because the unions in these really large cities, Los Angeles, Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, are continuing to try to keep the school doors largely closed. And so the reason that we see the numbers as low as they are for the proportion of kids across the country who have access to in-person instruction is because those districts enroll such a disproportionately large number of students. And so if you look at the numbers, just 24% of public school children are currently receiving in-person instruction. I mean, that's just a breathtakingly low rate. And if you compare that to the proportion of kids in private schools who have access to full-time in-person learning, that's 60% of kids in private schools who are getting in-person instruction. And north of 90% of kids who attend Catholic schools are getting in-person instruction. And so you can really see a contrast there between the public and the private sector. And a lot of that all comes back to the union problem. Well, and I think what's so sad and tragic about those numbers that you just shared is, you know, traditionally, (laughs) we think of, all right, students who are tend more frequently to be relying on public education. Those are students that maybe their families couldn't afford a private education, couldn't afford kind of a, a different option besides just the local public school. So with so few public schools opening, at the end of the day, that means the students in all likelihood who are really being hurt are the ones who naturally have less access, less resources, and might be growing up in a low-income family. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We are going to see the impact, the academic impact on kids across the board. But, you know, I think that this really is going to be acutely felt by those children who are in lower income families who, like you said, have fewer um, resources to access private options. If they're in a state that offers no school choice options to them, you know, that means that their parents have to be able to pay twice, once in taxes for the public school and then again in private school tuition if they want their child to have access to in-person instruction. And so that is, I think the pandemic has underscored two things really clearly when it comes to K-12 education, that the unions continue to wield a tremendous amount of power and the the just critical need to advance school choice yesterday, but as soon as possible, that every single child, if you don't have access to in-person instruction, if you cannot get into the school building that you are paying for, you should immediately be able to take those dollars to another learning option that's the right fit for you, that is open to in-person learning if that's what you want as a family. And so it's really just underscored the need to fund students rather than systems. If we did that as a general practice in K-12 education, if we said, as we should, 
that public education means the public financing of education, but that those dollars should follow children to whatever school is the right fit for them, we would have bypassed so many of these issues that the pandemic has brought onto K-12 education. We would have seen educational continuity for every child across the country if those dollars simply followed them to learning options that are the right fit, that are open. Well, and do you think, going off of that argument, do you think that we will see positive change in education as a result of the pandemic and maybe that there will be more openness at the government level to say, hey, school choice is a great option, you know, and is something that should be promoted across all states? I do. And that is maybe one of the silver linings of this pandemic is that we are seeing states at a much more rapid pace introduce measures to allow for school choice. And right now, most states are in the midst of their legislative sessions. We're in February now in the spring. So uh, they have an opportunity right now to uh, seize the moment and to change the way that they think about financing K-12 education. And we're seeing that dozens of states, dozens upon dozens. I think the last count I saw was 32 states had introduced some form of private school choice measure. And that could be an emergency education savings account. It could be a voucher or a scholarship option. It could be a tax credit scholarship. But these states are thinking about ways to make sure that children in this time of education crisis actually have continuity in their learning. And and that's the way you do it. You fund the family directly and allow those dollars to follow them to options of choice. And look, this is not a concept that should be foreign to us. This is how we finance higher education, right? We fund students directly. If you have a student loan or if you receive a Pell Grant, that grant money goes straight to you as the student. And you can then take that to any college that you want to take it to. You're not, you know, uh, resigned to going to whatever college happens to be in your neighborhood. And for the most part, that's how we finance preschool options as well. The states that have state preschool programs Many of those states, Florida is a great example. They fund the child directly and you can go to any preschool provider of choice. Where this concept is uh, out of sync with the rest of how we finance education is at the K-12 level. It's really the only level where we say we're going to fund a system, we're going to fund an institution, we are going to assign you to that institution based on your geographic zip code, based on where your family can afford to live And you're going to go to that school regardless of whether or not it's the right fit for you. And I think that that is the reason, the number one reason why we have so many of the problems that we face today, low levels of academic achievement and attainment. uh, And that is the case pre-pandemic as well. The pandemic has only exacerbated those existing problems. Yeah, well, it's certainly encouraging that there is a little bit of a silver lining and it seems like states are moving in the right direction. But it's sad that it took a pandemic for us to get there. <laughs> but let's talk a little bit about how how our students are actually doing. Is there any data right now coming out on the academic progress that students have had over the past year? Do we know where they stand? How many have actually you know learned something? How many are falling way behind? Yeah, so we're getting some preliminary data, and all of the data suggests that there is significant harm to students in these prolonged school shutdowns and that those harms even exceed 
the risk of COVID if we were to, to reopen schools across the board. There's the learning loss that we mentioned earlier, anywhere from a month to three months uh, is what I've seen so far. The estimates for learning loss with, as we said earlier, those uh, estimates being much more profound for children from low-income families who uh, may not be able to access a private school or pull together a, a learning pod option. But we've also seen uh, even more concerning indicators that students are not doing well with schools closed across the country. It's not only that we're seeing grades uh, decrease, right? The number of Fs of failing grades that have been assigned to kids have skyrocketed, but it's also their mental well-being, the emotional toll that this is taking on children. Um, there was a really concerning article that came out of uh, Las Vegas uh, that the New York Times had published talking about the increase in student suicides in the Las Vegas school system. And so that has uh, spurred that school system to think about reopening more quickly. And so these mental health issues are uh, genuine uh, issues for children that really, I think, should be front and center as we're having these conversations about school reopening. If we're seeing increased rates of depression and anxiety from, from children, in addition to the learning loss, that should catalyze us to do everything that we possibly can to reopen schools as quickly as possible. Children need to be around their friends. They need to be in front of their teachers to have those you know, spontaneous conversations, and they need to have in-person instruction uh, to really get those meaningful connections that they're missing right now. Yeah, I think that's such a critical part of the argument is that, yes, the academics are so important, but in some ways that, that mental and emotional component is even more important. That's right. Lindsay, we um, just so appreciate your time. Thank you so much for explaining this. And thank you for all the research that you're doing on this topic. I know you've been very busy just uh, really diving deep into this issue. Where can our listeners follow your work? Well, of course, you can go to heritage.org and you can click on our education tab and you'll see all of our work there, our research, but also resources like the Curriculum Resource Initiative that we run that if you're schooling at home right now, if you become one of these accidental homeschoolers, uh, there are lots and lots of resources uh, for you there as well to help your, your child's learning. Awesome. Lindsay, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right, stay tuned because up next, we crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. It's easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. If you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. Hosts Rachel Del Judas, Kate Trinko, Rob Louie, and myself, Virginia Allen, bring you headlines and interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning. Now it is that time, once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to... Janice Dean. Janice Dean is the senior meteorologist at Fox News. She's also one of the first people who began speaking 
out about Governor Andrew Cuomo's mishandling of nursing homes in New York during the COVID-19 pandemic. Many of you may have been aware, but just recently we've learned that it appears Governor Cuomo may have intentionally tried to cover up the actual number of nursing home resident deaths in the state. Cuomo's office reported 8,500 COVID-19-related nursing home deaths by the end of January. Well, now it's been revealed that the number is closer to 15,000. The high death count in New York nursing homes is at least in part being attributed to an order Cuomo issued in the early stages of the pandemic, which required elderly care facilities to care for COVID-19 positive residents, which then led to the spread of infection among other residents. Janice Dean lost her in-laws in a nursing home in New York State last spring when they were infected with COVID-19 and died shortly later. Dean appeared on Megyn Kelly's podcast last November to talk about how challenging that was personally and how frustrating it was to see Governor Cuomo publishing a book on his leadership during the pandemic when the virus was taking so many lives in his state. As Megyn Kelly said during the show, Dean is a pretty positive person. She is not controversial, but she is someone who stands up for the truth, and that is exactly what she is doing right now. She has been vocal about the role Cuomo played in covering up the actual number of nursing home deaths, and the media have been forced to pay more attention to the issue because she has been so vocal. Virginia, that podcast with Janice Dean and Megan Kelly, I really like a lot of the podcast episodes that we've done. But that might be my favorite single (laughs) podcast episode that I've ever listened to. And for Janice to be vindicated this week, I mean, it's just been inspiring. I mean, it must have been so hard for her to lose her in-laws in the middle of a pandemic and to know it was done due to negligence and, and to see this guy win an Emmy and put out a poster of, you know, how great he is and being one of the only voices to push against it, but she kept up the fight and now the truth is coming out, you know, what New York residents deserve. And I just, she embodies what it is to be a problematic woman. She definitely does. Well, and I think it's encouraging to see Lauren that the truth is coming out um, because, you know, sadly that doesn't always happen. So it, it is really encouraging that, She wouldn't stop speaking the truth on this issue. Janice Dean kept saying, wait a second, no, mistakes were made that Cuomo was involved with, that he was aware of, and truth was hidden from people. We need to know the truth. And I really believe because of her persistence on this issue, that really did force the media to take a closer look and actually investigate, okay, wait, what is going on here? So... Good job for Janice Dean, a very well-deserving Problematic Woman of the Week. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate the five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week, and we'll see you all next Thursday. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Pitt.